0: Don't you just love kids? They are so genuine. Yeah, I'm telling you, they say the darnest things. That's right. I'm just glad Jesus is wise because he bees good and creates a bunch of stuff. It's good. It does my heart good to know that if I have any problem or question, I can go to that one girl's brother who goes to middle school or junior high. He knows everything. Can I get an amen from the middle school parents? Middle scores know everything. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> well, today, as you've probably guessed, our topic is wisdom. We're going to be talking about wisdom, not just any kind of wisdom, but wisdom that comes from God. I think the passage in James that we're looking at in, in James chapter 3 is a pivotal passage in this whole book, because I think the book of James hinges around this passage. He speaks of wisdom and that inward motivator that drives our outward Christian life. You know, I, I'm convinced that if, if we were to apply all of the uh, truths taught in the book of James, that we'd live joyful lives, we would effectively influence our world for Jesus Christ. Because, you know, James, while it's many things, one thing it certainly is is a practical guide for Christian living. It's a great book, isn't it? I hope that over the past uh, seven weeks, we're in the eighth week of our uh, 12-week series in the study of James, and I hope in the last seven weeks you've been listening to God and you've been hearing His voice. Because if, you know, if we were to apply these truths, I think we'd be living that effective life, that Christian life we all desire. We know it's out there, but just sometimes it seems so hard to live. You know what I mean? I mean, I don't know about you, but I have this picture in my mind of what if I, if I live for Jesus Christ and I followed His Word and obeyed Him consistently, what my life would be like. You know, the Spirit says to me somewhere in here, Claude, if you just, if you just obey what I'm telling you and, and obey the Word, your life would be so full of joy and, and would just be the life that you've dreamed of. But there's always something that kind of sometimes just pulls my focus away from God's Word and and away from His desires. And I find that sometimes rather than living to please God, I'm living to please myself. I think there's probably some of us here in this room today who probably share that same type of struggle. You know, we want to live that life of an overcomer. We want to kick the gates of hell in. We We want the world to know we love Jesus and there's Nothing that we can't get through. There's no problem, no no struggle in our life we can't burst through. We want that life of a worry-free, fearless, overcoming life. But somehow the reality sometimes just seems a little bit less than that. Well, I think James speaks to us about that. I think God gives us some clues as to why sometimes we live for ourselves and why sometimes we live for God. So let's just get right into, the, right into the passage. We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. So let's just jump right in. James chapter 3, you can follow along in your, uh, with your study guide. The, the verses are at the top of your guide there. You just follow along as I read. James 3 verse 13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are. But the wisdom that is from God is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Father, we just thank You so much for Your Word. God, we just thank You that You give us the opportunity to just have a relationship with You and to know You. And I pray today as we look at this passage, Father, that You just open our hearts and our minds and our ears and speak to us now in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, I think as you recognize the practical applications in the book of James, you've probably said to yourself from week to week as Pastor Steve would would uh, discuss something or Pastor Brian or, or Andy, you'd, you'd probably say, you know, this is, this is how I should be. This is what I should do. But I think James speaks much deeper than that. He doesn't just say, this is what I sh- you should do or we should do. But he says, if you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, this is how you will behave. This is going to be the result of your life. I think one constant theme of James, over and over again, he gives us that test of genuine salvation. He challenges us, and he says, if you're truly a Christian, there'll be evidence of it in your life. There'll be evidence of it in how we behave, in what we do. You know, I think we think of behavior as those deeds we do, those words we say or as the acts we take, but I think from God's perspective, God speaks much deeper than that. God's perspective is that our behavior is not just the things we say or do, but it's our thoughts. It's our intents. It's our motivations. Those are all characteristics of our behavior. Example of that, you know, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, you know, 5, 6, and 7 are the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is speaking about a variety of things. And one thing he talks about is, is adultery. And he says, you know, the sin of adultery is not just committing the act. But he said, if you look upon someone and have lustful thoughts in your heart, you've already sinned. Jesus equates the acts with sin. That's a pretty tough standard, isn't it? But I wonder why He does that. Well, I think He does that because the reality is our deeds and our acts actually begin in our minds and our hearts, don't they? It enters our mind and our heart and our motivations before we actually... uh, behave in a certain way. Well, I think James in this passage expands on that concept that Jesus taught, and he challenges us to examine our hearts. And the challenge, he says, he says, to those who are truly born again, we will prove it by our actions. Prove it by our actions. A true follower of Jesus Christ will have godly wisdom, and it shows in how they respond to God and to others. The type of wisdom we live equals the type of wisdom we have. Well, in verse 13, James begins. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? If you think you're so wise, he says, prove it. Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness of wisdom. I think at some point, we, we all think of ourselves as wise. James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? You know, I think we all believe we have some expertise, some knowledge, some skill in some things. You know, and that's true. I mean, I don't know everything. Just ask my wife. (laughs) I don't know everything, but I do know a few things. But the wisdom that James is talking about here, he asks, who of you are really a specialist in the matter of living? Who among you knows the meaning of life? Now the difficulty with this passage is James doesn't just start by saying this is wisdom. He just doesn't explain to us what wisdom is, does he? He jumps right in and just asks us a question. And if we don't understand what he's talking about in wisdom, it will be hard to understand the rest of the passage. And the problem there is the fact that... you Remember uh, in uh, week number one, Pastor Steve told us that James was a Jewish man. He's writing a Jewish book and his audience is a Jewish audience. Remember uh, James one one says, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, he's writing to a Jewish audience and he's assuming that they already have this body of knowledge from the Old Testament, from the Scriptures we call the Old Testament. They already have this understanding of what wisdom is. So he doesn't explain it, he just jumps right in. And for us to understand this passage, we're going to have to create some definition of what wisdom is. Now, to truly understand biblical wisdom, that would take, you know, Pastor Steve could do a 10-week series on that subject alone. But we still need to answer the question, what is wisdom? I think the philosophy of mankind throughout the ages is that wisdom is the highest pursuit for which we should strive. The idea that if You gain wisdom, you can gain everything else. Well, in verse 13, I think James acknowledges the value that that men and God place on wisdom. You know, God also calls us to be wise. Men through the ages have sought wisdom and have said, that's the highest pursuit. But God also calls us to be wise. In the Old Testament, over 300 times, you're going to see the word for wisdom or the word for wise. The book of Proverbs at its very heart is the exploration of the value and the necessity of wisdom. You know, throughout the Bible, countless people have, have displayed their wise living or maybe they didn't have wisdom and we see the consequences of it in their lives. And from God's perspective, I think He puts a premium on wisdom. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7, He says, Wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom though it cost all you have get understanding you hear what he said that's pretty important he said if it cost everything you have get wisdom from a human perspective a dictionary definition of wisdom is wisdom is the ability developed through experience insight and reflection to discern truth and exercise good judgment. I think that says wisdom is knowing a thought or idea and knowing how to apply that thought or idea. It's not just having the information, but it's knowing what to do with that information. That's wisdom. That's from man's perspective. But you know, God says, if you really want to know what true wisdom is, let's see what God says about it, because that's where we'll really find out. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, a passage that I'm sure probably many of you are familiar with. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. To know God and to fear God are one and the same. And God says, that's wisdom. What does it mean to fear God? I like the definition that John MacArthur gives it. He says, Fearing God is having a reverential trust in Him. Fearing God is having a reverential trust in Him. I think that means we reverence God by understanding and respecting His holiness. He's creator of all that is and we respect Him for that. But we also trust in His love and His mercy. You know, God could obliterate us with just one thought, couldn't He? And we respect that power that He has. We reverence Him for that. But then we also trust in the provision He's made for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. that we can have a personal relationship with that God who holds all of that power. Reverencing and trusting God. Proverbs 4, uh, Proverbs 9.10 says it's the fear of the Lord. You know, the Old Testament concept of fearing the Lord is equal to, is synonymous with the New Testament concept of salvation. We get wisdom by putting our reverential trust in God. You can't have true wisdom without being born again. Because when you have a personal relationship with God, you have God. And He is the definition of wisdom. So we have Him inside us. We can access true wisdom. And that only comes through a born-again experience, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I think Paul, in Ephesians chapter one, seventeen, confirms this. When he says... The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. We can't know Him without His wisdom. Second Timothy 3.15, Paul says, You have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation. True wisdom is the identifier, I think, of a person who has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You know someone's spiritual state by the wisdom they display. It's what's on the inside comes out. And that's what James is is referring to in this passage. He says, If you're wise and have understanding, show it. It's because what's on the inside comes out. Now, to understand this concept of wisdom, we really need to know what God says and thinks about it. And you know, every week, usually, we give you a recommended reading. You know, a book that you can go to the bookstore and buy. If you're interested in a particular sermon or a particular message, there's always a supporting recommended reading book. You can see them in your bulletin. This week, I want to encourage you, if you're interested in truly finding out what God's wisdom is, where God's wisdom comes from, and what it's really all about, I'm going to recommend to you four books. The book of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Because that's the basis of Scripture that James lays the foundation for, for this passage that James delivers to us. Those four books, that's the Old Testament Scripture that he's basing his discussion on here in this passage. All right. Well, let's create this working definition of wisdom for the rest of the time. Let's say that wisdom is reverencing, believing in, trusting in, and yielding to God. You want to know what wisdom is? Wisdom is reverencing, believing, and trusting God. Verse 13, James says, Who is wise and understanding? Let him show it by good conduct. James gives us three proofs that we are wise. Proof number one, he says, prove it by your good conduct. Good conduct is our general behavior. Good conduct is who you are when you're alone and it's who you are when you're in a crowd. Good conduct is that generally good moral life that you live because you have the Spirit of God living inside you. James says, if you're wise and you have understanding, prove it by a good life, by living a good life. Second, he says, prove it. By his works. Let him prove it by his works. That's our good deeds. That's those specific actions and those individual daily acts that consist with a life of good conduct. You know, it's those specific things we do. It's how we treat people. It's how we respond to problems. You know, when your boss comes into work and and just rips your head off for no good reason, rather than blasting back at him. Been there, done that. You respond to Him in love. When the kids are bouncing around the room, rather than pow right to the moon, while you'd like to do that, believe me, you'd like to do that, you respond to them with patient discipline. When a sickness or a problem comes into your life, rather than being fearful or or concerned about, oh no, what are we going to do? Life is falling apart. We respond to it by trusting that God is in control. In faith, remember what we said, that, that deeds are not just the things we do, but it's, but it's our heart, it's our motivation, it's our mind, it's our spirit. It's how we respond to problems in life. James says, if you want to prove your wisdom, do it with good deeds. And finally, he gives us a sign of an empowered life that's empowered by God's wisdom. He says, good attitude. He says, in the meekness of wisdom. James says, we'll be meek. Our meekness will give us away. Now, that word meekness or the word meek has some bad connotations in the world, doesn't it? What is meekness in the world's definition? Weakness. Yeah. The world says to be meek is to be weak. The world's definition is is a meek person is someone who's pasty and whiny and fearful. You know, a doormat that lets people walk all over them. Let's think about Jesus Christ. You know, when he formed that that whip and he went into the temple in holy anger and drove the money changers out, that would not seem like a very meek attitude, would it? But yet Matthew 21 says, Behold, your king comes, meek and riding on a donkey. The Bible says that Jesus Christ was meek. Well, the word meek in the New Testament can best be described as power under control. That's what it means. Think of Jesus Christ. God, power under control. I think of a horse with a bridle. You know, uh, the, the, a horse is a symbol of power and, and the symbol of great strength, isn't it? You know, for thousands of years, they used horses as, as battle weapons, just as, as the way we use tanks today. You know, uh, if you remember movies like uh, Braveheart or Last Samurai... I love those movies. Ah. Think about those two lines, those two armies, you know, opposing one another. These guys on horses come riding across, just right into the lines of, of, of men. Horses are a symbol of power. And, you know, a horse left to itself can kick a barn door down, can, can run away, and you never catch him. But you put a bridle on him, a saddle on him, and you ride him, and great things happen. That's that power under control. Well, that's what the word meek in the Old Testament refers to, power under control. James says, if you think you're so wise and you know what life's all about, prove it by living it. The big question that James says is, is, what wisdom primarily motivates your actions? Is it God's wisdom or is it the world's wisdom? He begins to compare in verse 14, the wisdom of the world to the wisdom of God. He says, if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. If we say that we're wise and our motivations are bitter and self-seeking ambition, James says, stop lying about who you are. You know, bitter envy there describes a harsh, bitter, self-centered spirit. It it, it produces that self-focused, self-formed world. And you know what I'm talking about. You know those times maybe you have these feelings or maybe you know someone that has these feelings. Those attitudes of resentment to others or when we're critical of others' accomplishments. You know, we really don't like it when someone else achieves some level of success. We may not admit it, but our words give us away. The tone in our voice gives us away. Our actions give us away. That's bitter envy. That's what he's talking about. And the flip side of bitter envy is self-seeking. Thats self-seeking ambition. It's that sense of personal ambition that causes distrust of everyone else's motives. You know, you focus on yourselves and you're so focused on whatever you need to attain your own success, you really don't care about anyone else. There's no love, no humility, no servant mentality. It's all about me. Well what's the source of that wisdom? Well, James says, the source of the wisdom that produces bitterness and self-seeking ambition clearly doesn't come from God. It comes, first of all, from the earth. He says it's earthly. That's wisdom that's limited to time and space. It's wisdom that's limited to here and now. It's wisdom that's limited to this material world. It's never able to rise above this material world to view things from God's perspective. It's being concerned about the things of this world, this world system. It's about status and power and knowledge and perception. If the majority of our concern is this world and the things in it, false wisdom is the motivator for that. He says, first it comes from earthly, then next it's sensual. Sensual, that's those basic desires and impulses of human nature. It's wisdom that never rises above satisfying the flesh. It's those lustful desires that, to please myself. Regardless of any other one else's needs, I'm going to meet my own needs. And finally, he says, the source of this wisdom that produces bitterness and self-seeking envy and ambition, he says it's demonic. I think he, he calls it like it is. It's demonic. The source, the ultimate source of this wisdom Is from the devil himself. It's the same wisdom that drove Satan to rebel against God. It's the same wisdom that that he tempted Eve with in the garden. It's the same wisdom that drives bitter, self-seeking, personal-seeking, self-interested, self-motivated people today. It's from the devil. The ultimate source of this false wisdom is demonic. Well, he says that's where it comes from. What does it produce? First of all, if the wisdom from this world is the flesh and the devil and this earth, how can we say we have a relationship with God? And that's the claim James is making here. He's saying if, if this is the source of your wisdom, how can you say it's from God? You know, James is a pretty digital guy, isn't he? I mean in his mind it's ones and os, it's off and on, it's right or wrong. I think at the very least the reality is if if we have those attitudes and those feelings of personal ambition or, or pride or arrogance or envy, as believers, it's when we're giving ourselves over to control of the world's wisdom. I think that's that struggle. It's that struggle between those two theories, those two uh, philosophies, those two ideas, the world's wisdom and God's wisdom, when we're yielding ourselves to the world's wisdom. And the result of the world's wisdom, he says in verse 16, he says, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are. Confusion. Confusion is the result of the world's wisdom. Confusion is disorder coming out of instability. Literally, chaos. He says the result of the world's wisdom is chaos. Every evil work is just what it says. It's good for nothing. It's worthless. It's vile. Earthly wisdom never results in harmony, never results in love or peace, but it's proud and self-seeking. It destroys unity, fellowship, intimacy. It produces nothing but chaos. I think we can prove that today. When you go home today, turn on the news, any source, and check out the result of the world's wisdom. I think we live in a world that's self-imploding in violence and death because the world is leaning to its own wisdom. James says the result of the world's wisdom is chaos. The good news is he gives us the source of God's wisdom. We don't have to live in chaos and heartbreak. Verse 17 says, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, first pure, Some characteristics of God's wisdom. The first one is purity. Pure refers to the um, motive. It's sincere, moral, and free from selfish ambition. Jesus said, blessed are the pure. Truly believing in Jesus produces a heart of purity for God and love for others. And then then it motivates some other characteristics. Another characteristic of God's wisdom is peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, this kind of peace isn't the kind of peace that compromises with unholiness or untrue actions just for the sake of peace. No, this peace lives in truth and love and creates an environment of peace. Because you are at peace, you generate a spirit of peace. You stand up for the truth, but you do it with a peaceful nature. You're not contentious. He says, wisdom from God, it's also gentle. It's being humble and patient with an attitude of humility. If we're living from God's wisdom, we'll be kind and patient and considerate with no malice or hatred. You see where he's going with this? The wisdom from God is pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle. He says it's also willing to yield. It has a willingness to yield. It's not stubborn. But it's teachable and compliant and quick to admit wrong. When we're living and leaning to and giving our control to God's wisdom and leaning on God's wisdom, we won't be contentious and we'll be willing to admit our wrongs. You know, we're, we're very willing to own up to our failures and to our sins and to our wrongs. He says the wisdom of God is full of mercy and good fruits. It overflows with mercy and overflows with good fruits. That's those genuine concerns that we have for other people in need. And not just concern, but then we do something about it. We take action. We don't just stay there. Oh, I, you know, I feel sorry for that person. But we actually make a difference in their lives. Finally, he says the wisdom from God is without partiality and without hypocrisy. The wisdom of God doesn't play favorites. It's not hypocritical. It describes our relationship to other people. You know, if God's wisdom is our source, we'll be sincere in our relationships and we'll interact with others having no agenda. We won't be trying to twist people around to fit our needs. We'll be without partiality and without hypocrisy. Two weeks ago, I think Pastor Brian did a great job of, of describing the sin of partiality and prejudice and favoritism in the body of Christ. I find it interesting that the world's perception of the church is that the church is full of hypocrites. You know, you talk to anyone who really doesn't go to church and they'll say all that, they're just full of hypocrites. You know, whether right or wrong, that's actually the persona that we have in the church. I think it's because sometimes we as church people, maybe we're leaning to our own wisdom or the world's wisdom rather than the wisdom of God. And we come off with actually that hypocritical nature because James remember what James says here he says whatever on the inside of you is going to come out whatever wisdom we're yielding to prove it it's going to come out verse 18 finally you know we said the world's wisdom results in chaos but the wisdom of God he says now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace the wisdom of God results in peace Because a truly wise person will be at peace with God because God has made that that way that we can have a relationship with Him. We accept the solution that He has for our relationship with Him. So I'm at peace with God. And then a person who's living in the wisdom of God, the result's going to be peace with others because we realize that we've obtained nothing on our own. Let me ask you, what do you have that God didn't give you? Name one thing in your life that you achieved without God's blessing. I'm no better than anyone else in this world because there's nothing I have that God hasn't given me. So because of that, I can, I can interact with people without being bitter and proud and self-seeking. I can be at peace with God and peace with other people. The result of God's wisdom is peace. If we look at the world's wisdom, it's chaos. We will look at God's wisdom, its peace. So thinking back to my original question when I started, why do we live sometimes for ourselves and why do we live sometimes for God? Well, I think the answer is the wisdom I believe is the wisdom I live. You realize at times we yield ourselves to to this world's wisdom, this, this wisdom of the flesh that creates chaos and all of those bad things. And sometimes we yield ourselves to the wisdom of God that creates peace and love and harmony. And as followers of Jesus Christ, I think that's the struggle. That's the ultimate struggle in our lives. I don't know why God allowed us to continue with these two natures kind of fighting with one another, but He does. And our struggle from a day-to-day basis is, what wisdom am I yielding to? I mean, let's ask ourselves, what kind of people would we be if we yielded to the pure wisdom of God consistently in our lives? What kind of life would you have? What kind of family, what kind of marriage would you have if if you were yielding consistently to the wisdom of God? What kind of relationships would you have with others? What kind of church would new life be if we were all yielding to the pure wisdom of God. I think we'd all have the Christian life we want, wouldn't we? Take a title for a popular religious book, I think we'd be living our best life now. Don't you? If we lived yielding to the wisdom of God. Well, as I close, I want to challenge you with a couple thoughts, some questions. You look down there at the bottom of your study guide. The wisdom I believe is the wisdom I live. I want you to ask yourself these questions. Honestly, ask yourself these questions. Do I have this pure wisdom from God inside me? Am I a true follower of Jesus Christ? Remember, the wisdom of God starts with a personal relationship in Jesus Christ. I can't yield to God's wisdom and have that peace unless I have God inside of me. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? If you don't today, please talk to someone about that. Please pray about that today. Give your heart to Jesus Christ. You can begin, you can begin to experience the peace of God. If you're a believer here today, be asking yourself, what wisdom motivates me as I respond to God and others? When I'm responding to other people or when I'm thinking about my relationship with God, what is the wisdom that's motivating me? Which wisdom am I leaning to, the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of God? And finally, am I motivated by God's wisdom or does the self-seeking wisdom of this world show others that love is not my motive? Those are some good questions you can challenge yourself with on a consistent basis. I want to leave you with one thought, and if you remember nothing else I've said today, I want you to remember this. Remember this one thought. Wisdom is what you believe. And what you believe is not what you say. What you believe is what you do. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much that you give us the opportunity to have a personal relationship with you, that we can access true wisdom from you. We can understand the meaning of life. We can understand what our lives are about. We can understand you and how you've created us. We can have love and peace and joy. God, I just thank you for that today. I ask you, Lord, as we leave this place that you would help us to not yield to the wisdom of this world, to not be yielding to the wisdom that comes from the world, that comes from the devil, but help us to be yielding to the wisdom that only comes from you. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We praise you today. May you be glorified in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen.